This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Seven years ago, the Pennsylvania Senate passed a resolution directing the Joint State Government Commission to undertake a comprehensive analysis of capital punishment in the Commonwealth. The commission is the legislature's research arm, and its study included four senators who sat on a task force overseeing the project, plus an advisory committee of approximately 30 stakeholders. The advisory committee included ACLU PA Executive Director Reggie Shuford. When Governor Wolf took office in 2015, he used his constitutionally guaranteed power of reprieve to halt executions, in part because of the ongoing study. At the time, the governor expressed his concerns that the death penalty was tainted by unfairness in how it functioned. Last month, the commission finally released its report, and that report found the same things that had been found in previous analyses, that capital punishment in Pennsylvania is plagued by disparities in income and geography, that it is expensive to operate, and that race plays a role in deciding who gets a death sentence. While the report does not call for repeal of the death penalty, which is the position of the ACLU, it does recommend significant reforms. No one has been executed in the Commonwealth in 19 years. Three people with mental illness who waived their appeals were executed in the 1990s, and no one has been involuntarily executed since 1962. Meanwhile, in what is called the modern era of the death penalty, since it was reinstated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976, six people have been exonerated in Pennsylvania after being sentenced to death, and several others had legitimate claims of innocence but took plea deals after winning new trials. The death penalty in Pennsylvania is withering on the vine, but 150 people remain on death row in the Commonwealth's prisons and DAs continue to pursue death sentences. For this episode, I talked with Marshall Dion, a federal capital appeals attorney who participated in the study. Marshall shares his insights on the study's findings and its recommendations. Marshall, let's start with your role here. Why? I wonder if you can tell uh, folks what your um, position is, what you do for a living, and uh, why you're a stakeholder in this death penalty debate. Um, Sure. Uh, First, good morning, Andy. It's nice to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Um, I uh, have been an attorney for um, 32 years. And for all of those 32 years, I have represented people who were charged with or convicted of capital crimes. Uh, At the moment, I'm uh, an assistant federal public defender in the uh, Western District of Pennsylvania, and I work in the capital habeas unit, which means that I represent uh, death row inmates in federal habeas corpus proceedings. Um, and I think for the for the, for that reason, um, because I've spent my career representing people charged with or convicted of capital crimes, uh, and I'm in the Western District of Pennsylvania Federal Defender's Office, uh, I was asked to be on the advisory committee of the um, uh, Joint State Government Commission's um, study on the death penalty in Pennsylvania. 
Right. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of that. This was a study that uh, originated in 2011 from a state Senate resolution. Um, just so uh, the folks listening have an understanding, how did that advisory committee function? What was the structure of the study? So there were originally um, 30 um, Pennsylvania citizens who were asked to serve on the advisory committee of the um, of the task force of the Pennsylvania Senate, um, Senate's death penalty study, uh, committee. And, uh, they came from all walks of life. There were, um, uh, police officers, prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers, uh, victims' rights advocates, uh, corrections officers or former corrections officers. Um, there were uh, academics, there were judges, uh, there were um, lawyers from the private sector, lawyers um, from private nonprofits. So it was a very, very well-rounded, very diverse uh, advisory committee of 30 people that were asked to serve uh, back in 2011. Uh, clergy people, if I didn't mention clergy. Um, so there were really uh, people from all walks of life who served uh, uh, on the advisory committee. And in that original Senate resolution, there was a long list of areas of the death penalty that were to be studied. Um, and I don't, it, would be, it would be a long conversation if we went through them all. But this has been a long-awaited report. Governor Wolf based um, his moratorium on executions on the fact that this study was happening and, and the fact that he had his own concerns about fairness and capital punishment. Um, the report has now been released seven years in the making. What are the key findings from the report? So as you suggest, Andy, there were, there were actually 17 areas that the, that the uh, Senate resolution called upon the researchers to study and which we as an advisory committee assisted uh, in studying uh, from the impact of the death penalty on uh, surviving family members to whether or not the death penalty is uh, is, uh, is is fair in terms of uh, racial and economic uh, justice, whether it's proportionate, uh, how much it costs, and is it a cost-effective um, a crim uh, a, a, a criminal justice tool? Um, we were asked to study uh, whether or not the the, the process itself, not not just the, the, the death penalty generally, but the way in which it is imposed and carried out in Pennsylvania, uh, whether uh, the process is fair. Uh, do we provide counsel? Are there alternatives that could be more effective? What's its penological intent? Um, all of these issues were, were, were studied uh, and reported on in the, uh, in the report. Among the most important and interesting, I think, are the following. Pennsylvania is the only state in the country in which there are no uh, state resources provided for indigent defense, even in capital cases, even where the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is seeking to um, take the lives of criminal defendants. The state does not spend one nickel in providing uh, adequate defense. And uh, 
the report says that's a huge deal. Uh, and that as a result of that, because it's strictly county by county funding, the quality of counsel that uh, folks who are charged with or convicted of capital crimes receive varies widely depending upon um, what county uh, you're prosecuted in or convicted in, depending upon whether you receive a court-appointed counsel um, that's from a public defender's office or whether you receive court-appointed counsel from the private bar, whether your lawyer is someone who is experienced in capital litigation or less experienced in capital litigation, the uh, the disparities in the quality of counsel across the straight state are, are just uh, uh, really stunning. And one of the things that the uh, report calls upon is the state legislature to fund a centralized office of capital defender to represent uh, people in Pennsylvania who are charged with or convicted of capital crimes to ensure that there is quality representation for anyone who the state uh, is seeking to execute to make sure that the process is fair. The idea is, is, you know, I don't know if you know this, Andy, but since 1974, over 160 people who were convicted of capital crimes and sentenced to death have been totally and completely exonerated of the crimes for which they were convicted. That's a huge number of people that we could have wrongly executed. Um, six of those people are in Pennsylvania. And so the uh, problem of providing quality represent- representation to people who are charged with it or convicted of capital crimes is a huge problem. And this report, um, as with many reports before it, are calling on the state to take action to deal with this problem. We know that there is a risk uh, of executing innocent people. And, you know, as I've said, we've had six exonerations from death row in Pennsylvania, and the study uh, identifies that problem, as have other studies. We have a, a, a clemency system that's designed, you know, in theory, to be a backup in case the legal system uh, doesn't work right. Uh, that's why the President of the United States and the Constitution is given uh, pardon powers and why uh, in Pennsylvania, the executive branch is given pardon powers. But in, in Pennsylvania, unlike the way the system works uh, at the federal level, unlike the President of the United States, who has complete plenary power to commute sentences or to grant clemency or to pardon people, the governor in Pennsylvania doesn't have that power in capital cases or, or life without parole cases unless a pardons board unanimously recommends uh, that the governor should exercise that authority. And the pardons board, um, by, 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 by the state constitution, requires uh, that the attorney general be on the pardons board, that the lieutenant governor be on the pardons board. These are elected officials uh, who are, you know, um, necessarily um, conservative in the in the sense that they don't want to uh, recommend something that could come back to haunt them politically. The pardons board also re- requires a corrections person. Um, it requires a victim's rights advocate. 
So the pardons board, by its by its makeup in the in the Pennsylvania Constitution, is um, geared to include people who would um, ordinarily be skeptical of the exercise of executive pardoning power, clemency power, and yet the Constitution requires that the pardons board be unanimous in a recommendation before the governor can exercise that authority. The study commission and the advisory committee uh, felt that that was um, too uh, heavy a burden for someone to carry to uh, to show the governor that uh, that clemency should be exercised in the very uh, very rare circumstances, and so it's recommending that that authority be um, changed from requiring a unanimous vote of the clemency board to uh, a majority vote of the clemency board. One last thing, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but one last thing that the that the um, that the report finds is that. There remains considerable race discrimination in the application of capital punishment in Pennsylvania. Um, what most people don't know is that uh, that race discrimination is not necessarily correlated to the to the race of the defendant, but rather correlated strongly to the race of the victim of the homicide. In other words, in Pennsylvania, if you kill a white person you're far, far more likely to be sentenced to death than if you kill a person of color. And let's talk for just a second about what that means. Since the death penalty uh, can only be imposed upon a jury finding, it means that, you know, implicitly, the, the citizens who serve on our juries tend to value the lives of white people more than they value the lives of people of color. And that's a very, very disturbing conclusion, but it's it's real, and it's one that has been uh, borne out in many, many studies that have been conducted over the last 30 years, including in Pennsylvania. So this is very consistent with data that we've seen for the last 30 years, that there is a strong correlation between the race of the victims uh, of a homicide and who gets sentenced to death. One other thing. There's an awful lot of geographic correlations. Um, the laws aren't applied the same across the states. If you commit a homicide in some counties, you're far more likely to get sentenced to death than if you commit a homicide in other counties. And, you know, in a state system, you should be treated the same whether the offense occurs in Allegheny County or whether the offense occurs in Fayette County, or whether the offense occurs in Montgomery County, or whether the offense occurs in Luzerne County or in Philadelphia. Um, The law should apply the same across the board. So that's interesting. Those four things you mentioned, two are recommendations and two are identifying problems. Um, The two recommendations are the state uh, capital defender office and changing the clemency process. And then you're mentioning what are, the study effectively identified two problems, at least not not exclusively two, but those two you mentioned: um, disparity in the race of the victim. That if a victim is white, the sentence is more likely to end up being death, and geographical disparities. Um, interestingly, you didn't mention whether or not the study commission um, recommended repealing the death penalty. 
and the and the commission uh, the committee uh, decided not to to make that recommendation. But it's interesting that when you when you identify those two problems, geographic disparities and race disparities, it sounds like it was basically identifying the problem. But what is there is there a recommendation on how to address that? Uh, there are not specific recommendations on on how to address the problems of discrimination that we identified. There are there are there 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 are some recommendations for further study. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when we were talking about the dis- the disparity in sentencing based on the on the race of the victim of homicide, uh, I said that this study didn't re- didn't show any correlation between the race of the defendant and whether or not the death penalty is imposed more frequently. Part of the reason that this study didn't show that is because uh, it really didn't, the the study did not look at whether or not uh, prosecutors' offices were making decisions about who gets prosecuted with with first-degree murder versus second-degree murder or third-degree murder or some degree of manslaughter. So, you know, um, it looked only at first-degree murder cases. So there could be, I'm not saying there is, but there could be disparity in uh, who gets prosecuted for first-degree murder based on race or class. But that simply wasn't studied by the researchers. And one of the things the advisory committee recommended is that the researchers who did that study um, seek funding to go back and do a broader study that will, in fact, shed some light on whether or not uh, people who are getting prosecuted for first-degree murder, which is the only crime in Pennsylvania that's eligible for the death penalty, whether there's any correlation between uh, race or class and who gets sentenced? Uh, who gets uh, prosecuted for first-degree murder, the only crime for which the death penalty uh, can be imposed in Pennsylvania? You know, it's no—it's no secret that the ACLU believes that repeal of the death penalty is um, the appropriate policy choice. Um, that many of these problems you identified um, are baked into the system, and um, there's no level of reform. Uh, that can change that. You're you're always going to be at risk of executing an innocent person. That that race, racism and racial disparities um, are um, big problems in the criminal justice system beyond the death penalty. Um, and but it's it's understandable that, and I think it's helpful that the study commission, the the, the advisory committee, um, at least identified these problems and made some some significant recommendations. I want to come back to the the state defender office. My understanding is that. Um, there are offices like this in other states. Can you talk a little bit about that? There have been capital defender offices established in many, many other states. Um, Colorado, Virginia, Georgia, uh, uh, several other states have offices of capital defender. That is to say, you know, um, capital cases are, are, are difficult. They're complicated. The law is very complicated. Uh, and it takes uh, learning about 
how capital cases differ from the run-of-the-mill criminal case in order to adequately provide representation. Let me give you a quick example. Um, in capital cases, unlike any other kind of criminal case, there might be, and often is, uh, a conflict between the kind of defense you might want to put on in the guilt-innocence determination. Let me back up and, and share with, with, with you and, and with the listeners that um, capital cases are bifurcated. That is to say there are two parts of every capital trial. The first part is a determination by, by a jury about whether the prosecution has proved beyond a reasonable doubt all of the elements of the crime of first-degree murder. Uh, including whether someone was killed, whether that killing was unlawful, whether that, that, that unlawful killing was with malice of forethought, and whether that unlawful killing um, with malice of forethought was done uh, after premeditation and deliberation, that is, with specific intent to kill. Um, the jury has to find each of those things beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, before someone can be convicted of first-degree murder. Um, once someone has been convicted of first-degree murder, then there's a, a second um, uh, mini-proceeding, generally before the same jury, on whether the appropriate punishment in that case is life without parole. That is to say, that person will never see outside of a prison or whether that appropriate punishment is the death is the is the death penalty is is a punishment of death. One might ha have some some evidence to defend uh, that this person didn't commit the crime of first degree murder, either because they didn't commit any crime at all, or because they didn't have. Um, the requisite mental state, you know, weren't they, the person uh, didn't act with malice of forethought or did not have the specific intent to kill, uh, and therefore the person is guilty of some lesser degree of homicide but not first-degree murder. If you put on a, def a defense like that and the jury rejects it and then and says, no, no, we we believe the prosecution has proved each and every element of the, the offense of first-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt, it becomes very hard for that same lawyer and that same defendant to then express remorse for the homicide and to ask the jury not to impose the death penalty because of that remorse or and for other reasons as well. But, you know, how... How likely is it that the same jurors who who heard a defense that this person isn't guilty, how likely is it that those same jurors are going to believe that the person, after being convicted of, of all of the elements, then expresses remorse? How likely is it that those jurors are going to express remorse? So before an attorney can make a decision and before a defendant can make a decision about how to proceed, with the defense, you know, there has to be an awful lot of thought into what's my 
defense at the guilt phase? What's my defense at the penalty phase? Do they conflict? Those, that's, that's an issue that no other criminal defense lawyer has to take into account when making strategic decisions about how to present a defense. Um, and that's just one of many, many examples of how, how capital cases are much more difficult than uh, other kinds of, of criminal cases. So in many states, there have been created capital defender offices where these are specialized public defender offices where people are trained uh, just how to do capital cases uh, so that people can who are charged with capital crimes and who are facing the death penalty get um, quality representation as required by the United States Constitution and the Pennsylvania Constitution. That's who we are as a society. We think if we're going to kill somebody, we're going to make sure that, that we're doing it right, that, that um, we're not uh, convicting the wrong people and that we're not executing the wrong people. And the only way to do that is to make sure that people who are charged with those crimes get the very best representation that they can get. Marshall, I think that's a great uh, exclamation point on the end of this discussion. Uh, thank you for your time and thank you for your work. Glad to talk to you, Andy. Thank you to Marshall Dion for taking the time to share his insights about the report on Pennsylvania's death penalty. We will include a link to the report in the show notes. Last month, the ACLU hosted its nationwide member conference in Washington, D.C., our first member conference in a decade. Several thousand people attended from all over the country, and I had the chance to catch up with several attendees from Pennsylvania, including a college student, a former ACLU PA intern who now works in our national office, and two ACLU PA board members. We talked about why they decided to spend three days in a convention center with other ACLU members and what issues they care most about. Let's listen in. So what's your name and where are you from? My name is Kirsten. Um, I'm from Altoona, Pennsylvania, but I go to school at Penn State University, Pennsylvania. And you are a college student. You made a decision to come to an ACLU member conference. Why? Why did you decide to spend your days this week uh, here with all these ACLU members? Yeah, um, I'm actually interning in D.C. this summer, um, so I was in the area. That was that was a big part of it. But also, um, I just think in general, I've been following up with the work that the ACLU has done, especially within the past year. And I think it's so crucial um, that you have people coming together for, for advocacy and for, for organizing. Um, and you're fighting for these these great issues, you know, these great progressive issues. Um, I think given our current political climate, um, it's really, really important that you can come together and kind of coalesce and talk about these issues and, and educate people. Um, and so I just think the work that the ACLU is doing is really, really important um, in terms of so many representative issues. Um, and so I really, I really appreciate that about the organization and I'm excited. Well, we appreciate that yeah. feedback too. Uh, and actually you said to me before I hit record that uh, we're, <laughs> we're the reason why you're here, the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I was just curious as to what you meant by that. Uh, I recently, I've been, I've studied a lot of constitutional law 
in my time at Penn State. And so I've, I've known a lot about like history of cases that the ACLU has dealt with. Um, and in general, it's such a wide expanse of issues. And I think that over time, those issues have remained incredibly important. I'm passionate about immigration. I'm passionate about women's rights. I'm passionate about voter reform. Um, and so the ACLU really just tackles all of these wide issues. And they're not just issues that specific communities face. You know, they're national issues. They're issues in Pennsylvania and they're issues in California. And so I think to have this national conference and to get all of these people here together and to talk about these issues and how to really solve them. Um, I know this the conference is sponsoring a lot of workshops, which is really great. Um, and I think that's just really important that people have that sort of outlet. Um, and, and the means to come here and do that, so, yeah. Um, before we started recording, you also told me that you changed your major to political yeah. science after the 2016 election. Why did you decide to do that? Um, I was really impacted. Um, I think as a college student, um, you're kind of around this um, politically energized environment as it is. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't particularly come from a politically active community or a politically active family. Um, it never interested me. But then I think I realized in the 2016 election that these issues matter and um, politics affects everyone. I think I realized that kind of any anything and everything is political. Um, so that kind of made me really inspired. And I think in my life I've been blessed um, that there are certain issues and certain social issues that I haven't exactly had to deal with or confront, but there's so many people that have been able to do that. Um, I'm also a history major, so I feel like growing up, like I've always been able to easily put myself in other people's shoes. Um, and so in that sense, I think that the work that the ACLU does for a lot of minorities, a lot of immigrants, I just think it's so important that you're fighting for people that don't have a voice and you're giving them that outlet, you're giving them that voice. Um, and I realized that through the 2016 election and I've realized that even more in this past year, how incredibly important that is. Um, it's kind of a thing of checking your privilege in a way, you know, just because you um, you, ha you have that outlet and you have that voice doesn't mean that you can't fight for other people that, that don't. So. Awesome. Well, yeah. Kirsten, thank you for supporting the ACLU and for being here. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thank you. All right, so what's your name and where are you from? Uh, my name is Mike Garvey, and originally I'm from outside, Penn, or outside Philadelphia in Bucks County, but now I live in Washington, D.C. And Mike, why do you live in Washington, D.C.? Uh, I moved to Washington when I took a job for the National ACLU at the Washington Legislative Office in 2014. So you have an ACLU connection. Actually, as I recall, you have a connection that goes back even further than that. I do. I do. Uh, in fact, just several weeks before coming down here, uh, I was still sort of helping out a bit in the ACLU of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia office, uh, where I was a graduate intern in the Clarabelle DeVault Reproductive Freedom Project. So, Mike, you work in our Washington legislative office. Uh, you've been there for several years. What is on your plate? Uh, right now, most currently, it's, it's sort of supporting um, the entire national policy agenda in Congress. Um, that sounds kind of massive. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a bit big, uh, but we're, we're a growing department, uh, the National Political Advocacy Department, and um, it's trying to integrate you know, the traditional legislative work that we've always done with a sort of like local locally based but like national in scope uh, advocacy effort to really bring things down to the grassroots to get um, people involved to give them the tools that they need to go to their members of Congress and advocate for the change that they want and so you know one of the things that we prepared here for the membership conference was a series of um, of one-pagers for issues that are currently happening on, in Congress uh, 
you know, that people could go if they wanted to up to the hill and be able to say, like, you should support this or you should, you know, take this position because, you know, I'm your constituent. This is something that ACO cares about and uh, it's a pressing issue. So. Well, to that point then, uh, so what are the key issues? As someone who's here in our Washington office, um, top two or three issues in Congress right now that, or more maybe, you're, you sighed and rolled your eyes a little bit when I said two or three. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are the, for our members, what are the big issues they should know about? Well, yeah, the reason I had the reaction is because, you know, there's, a, there's there are things that are very big, uh, things that happen over a long period of time. So for instance, like criminal justice reform and police reform, those are things that have been, you know, we've been working on for years and years and years. Um, and you know, that's change that takes time and you have to cultivate the groundwork for uh, the bill, to get the bill that you want through the committee um, and, you know, onto the floor. So, you know, that's, a, that's one of the top issues, certainly. Uh, but then there are things that you, if you can capture a moment in time to create some change, Another one I'll issue or highlight here is um, congressional sexual harassment procedures. Um, it's they've been flawed for years, and so as part of the Me Too movement, there's been a series of legislative efforts to try and remedy that to create more accountability among the legislative ranks. Um, and so, you know, this Congress it's been a hot issue, um, and the House passed a very good bill. The Senate passed a bill that was not as good. It's got some deficiencies. And so one of the things that we're asking you know, people here to do is to ask their members to go to conference to create a bill that actually will create meaningful change. And so that's one of those things that's like, you know, the window of opportunity is open, but it won't be open forever. And so, you know, that's one of the things that was popping right now. All right, last question, and then we'll uh, head into the morning plenary here. Um, what do you think, so there's several thousand people here at this conference. Um, as a staffer for the national office, what do you think is, what, what are the key things, I should say that plural, key things that members should walk away with? Uh, though for those who are here at the conference, and maybe for folks who are listening to this who weren't at the conference, but you know, need some, some um, uh, an action or a takeaway from, from, this, uh, from this event. So I think, I think there's a couple. I think, one, you should walk away with the sense that you can be a participant in change. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, we recently launched the ACLU voter program. You know, it, it's not just about you know, litigation. It's not just about, like, legislative advocacy. It's about, you know, using the elections process to see candidates support issues that you care about. It's not a partisan thing. It's not, you know, uh, a strictly like electoral advocacy thing. It's it's more about, you know, that's one of those moments when you can get people into office that, or use the electoral process to get issues to the forefront that you care about. And so I think that's one of the things that people could walk away here knowing is like how to engage their members, how to engage through the electoral process, how to, you know, use all those little processes of government to, um, you know, to promote the issues that you care about. Mike, thanks for taking the time. It's good to see you. Thanks, Andy. First, tell us your name and where you're from. Stephanie Tolls from Reading, Pennsylvania. And Stephanie, you chose to take three days out of your schedule, out of your life, to come to Washington and attend the ACLU conference. Why did you decide to do that? I thought it was really important to find out what's happening at the national level. I have been on the Pennsylvania board for two years now, 
And during that time, we had the Charlottesville incident occur. And we've also, um, well, we've had everything that's occurred over the last two years, uh, really. You know, but Charlottesville really challenges some of the ACLU's root uh, philosophical beliefs. And those conversations that we've been having in Pennsylvania are riveting. Um, I wanted to know how those conversations sound at the national level. Um, since I've been here, though, what I've really enjoyed doing is bragging uh, about being from Pennsylvania. And so one of the things that I think we have not publicized enough or that the news hasn't caught up on is that in the whole Starbucks scenario, that win was because of the fact that the ACLU and others got involved in that district attorney race. And when those men were arrested, the DA's office did not press charges. That story would have ended very differently had there been another DA involved. And so I applaud Starbucks for the action that they took, and I applaud the media for covering it. But I think they missed a really big component, which is that it was the activism in the DA's race that led to that victory. And I've kind of been telling everybody here that I meet that that was our Pennsylvania win in my book. Awesome. So uh, we're recording this on Monday afternoon. We're about 24 hours into the conference. Uh, What have you found to be particularly compelling and interesting among the speakers and workshops? Last night's speech uh, with Stevenson, um, it's one of the first times that I've been at um, a dinner speech where I actually took out a pad and started taking notes. Um, He was amazing. And um, he gave very clear, simple four points um, to, to help a person understand where they can jump in from any level, whether you've already been involved and have a lot of background knowledge or whether you're brand new. And I love that. And I'm looking forward to kind of summarizing what he said and being able to kind of share that uh, with other people in my circle. So you're willing to take time to volunteer for the ACLU. Obviously, you care about civil liberties. What are the civil liberties issues that you particularly are passionate about? Um, I'm very interested in expanding, not uh, today, like you said, we're Monday, and the um, Supreme Court decision just came down from the Ohio verdict. Um, So I'm very interested in making sure that we expand people's access to their voting rights. But uh, everything along that the ACLU stands for um, has always been important to me. But I think that it's important now in the 21st century that the ACLU looks more like the nation, staff-wise, leadership-wise, that we examine some of those philosophical core beliefs um, behind not speaking up about the Second Amendment. Uh, and behind whether or not we should have some guides or limits on protecting all first right speech. Um, I I like the conversation. I like the challenge of trying to sort it out and figure it out. And I just think it's important to be a part of that. I don't want that decided without my voice. Well, Stephanie, thanks for taking the time and thanks for being a supporter of the ACLU. Thanks for talking. All right, sir. So I know who you are and your connection, but what's your name? Where are you from? Uh, I'm Bill Warren of Harrisburg. Uh, Connection to the ACLU is I'm on the state board. 
So, Bill, you could be doing anything else these three days. Uh, why did you decide to come to Washington to attend an ACLU conference? Well, we don't have these all the time. I was interested to see who was here as much as I was interested in seeing the program and some of the speakers. And I have been just blown away uh, by who is here, the diversity, the uh, youthfulness of the crowd. Uh, you know, the ACLU has a, maybe a reputation for being a lot of old white guys like I am. And we're actually in short supply. Uh, there is so many more young people here. It gives us such hope for uh, moving things forward, you know, and, uh, even in these uh, somewhat dark times for civil liberties. So I wanted to see who was here. I wanted to uh, uh, support the, uh, the affiliate uh, by coming down. We have a good turnout. I understand we have about several dozen people uh, here for the three days. Uh, I can't imagine a better way of spending my time. So we are recording this on Monday afternoon, which is day two of the conference. So we're you know just over 24 hours into it. What are some of the compelling things you've heard so far uh, through the workshops and the speakers? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I've attended about uh, two of the uh, the workshops, and of course I've been to the general sessions and so forth. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I, I, I got to just talk a little bit about her because that's fresh in my mind. She just finished up a 30-minute uh, speech that was really inspirational. Uh, she did a great job. She is a seasoned performer, of course, and she gave a pretty strong speech, uh, devoid of personal attacks and totally focused on substantive issues. Uh, there's a lot of very interesting programs, and unfortunately when you have four uh, you know, working sessions at any one time, you only get to pick one unless you're bouncing back and forth. I heard a really uh, interesting program on artificial intelligence earlier this morning. Um, the camaraderie that's here, uh, that's also been a, a plus. Um, I, uh, you know, when we go to those sessions that involve just leadership, they tend to be a little more nuts and bolts, and I'm a little more of a, on the nuts and bolts side of things, keeping the organization running well, supporting the people who are out there doing the hard work. That's really kind of what I'm more about than uh, than doing it myself, or uh, you know, picking up all the tips about how to organize. But you know. Good things. Uh, there was one session uh, one of our uh, guys did, Nick, uh, uh, who's our criminal justice uh, specialist. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he did a program on thanking people who are volunteers. And boy, is that important. You know, it's like asking people for a vote. Yeah. It's really important. And uh, to thank all the people that do all the hard work, you know, we should be doing uh, that a lot. So you've been involved with the ACLU of Pennsylvania for a while, probably close to a decade now, I would guess. Well, yeah, yeah, I've been on the board for about 12 years, but I joined the ACLU in 71. Uh, 19, as in 1971. Right. <laughs> Not 18? No, no. Uh, so well, that leads to my question, which is uh, why? Why do you support the ACLU? What issues do you care about? What is it about the organization? Uh, I, I care about... Um, uh, women's right to choose, choice, that's probably my biggest issue. And First Amendment is probably my biggest issue. Or really traditional ACLU member uh, agenda. Those are the things that are most in my mind. But uh, all the other work, you, you just can't separate it out. I mean, all the other work we do, uh, we're so much stronger as an organization for all the membership support we're getting, uh, all of the donations we're getting. We've added uh, tremendous staff, and that's allowed us to go outside of those traditional areas 
and do a lot of really good things in racial justice, criminal justice reform. Um, you know, it's hard to pick. Well, Bill, thanks for your time and thanks for your support. Great. Thank you to Kirsten, Mike, Bill, and Stephanie for taking the time to talk, and to everyone from Pennsylvania and around the country who attended the member conference last month. Our hope is that it was a rewarding experience for everyone there. That is a wrap on this episode. We're seven episodes into this podcast now, so if you're enjoying it, please be sure to rate and review it on your podcast app of choice. That helps raise the visibility of the pod, which helps get the word out about civil liberties and what is happening with the ACLU of PA. And be sure to share our episodes on all of your personal social media platforms. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. And I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.